0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, there is no greater delight, there ought to be no greater delight, there is no greater privilege, than to be called by your name and to be members of you and members of one another by your infinite goodness and grace and power and mercy that you have made known to us and that you have vouchsafed to us in Jesus our Lord. And so we are gathered as followers of Christ. We are gathered as Christians. We are gathered as those who are your people, those who are a part of your renewal. And Father, I I ask that as you have given us the mind of Christ, as you have given us your wise, insightful, gracious spirit, I pray that you would meet us in this time as we continue our worship. I pray for your leading of my words. I pray for Your leading in my mind, I pray for the leading of your people who are gathered here. I pray that by your mercy you would give us a fresh glimpse of this new creation that we are a part of. Of the truth that if anyone is in Christ, the old things have passed away, behold new things have come. I pray that you would meet us in that way, that you would instruct us in that way, that you would encourage and edify us in that way. Whatever our understanding, whatever our background, whatever our convictions, I pray that you would instruct each one of us in truth this day, that Christ would be revealed and and honored and glorified. And that we, by your spirit, would see him more clearly and be more truly conformed to him. Help us, we pray. Meet us in our weakness. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're continuing in Hebrews with the series of closing exhortations as the writer brings this great epistle to its, its close and, and really in a way draws together all of his instruction with a series of practical directives or, or instruction or exhortations to his readers. And the last time we, we saw as we considered this obligation to imitate leaders, to imitate uh, the leaders who were leading this congregation, the writer exhorted them to follow the outcome, to take note of the outcome of their faith, and so imitate them. And then he said, Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he was giving them the assurance that the Messiah that they were following, the Messiah that he had been instructing them concerning, the Messiah that they were to follow in faith was the same Messiah that their leaders had followed and to consider how following that Messiah had borne such good fruit. And in fact, as I said, they themselves, these Hebrews were a very real part of that fruit of their leaders. They could look at themselves and see the Lord's fruitfulness in those who follow him faithfully. But he also... Precisely because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, they were obligated to hold to him in truth. In that way, that statement, Jesus the Messiah, the same yesterday, today, and forever, forms a kind of hinge between the exhortation to follow the example of their leaders, seeing the outcome of their faith, and also this exhortation to hold tightly to the truth. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, those who embrace him, those who would be faithful to him, must do so, they must be faithful to him according to the truth of who he is. Hold tightly then to that truth without deviation, without alteration. And that really is the heart of this next exhortation. And as I considered this, I, I, rightly or wrongly, came to uh, conclude that we need to, in a sense, kind of park on this a little bit and lay some foundational uh, understandings in place, be, rather than just kind of skim across this and move move on. But if you'll read with me, we'll we'll look at these particular words. And then consider them. He says again in verse 7, remember those who led you. This is Hebrews 13. Who spoke the word of God to you and considering the outcome of their manner of life. That's really the idea. The outcome, the fruitfulness of their manner of life. Imitate, not them, their faith. Their faithfulness. Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever And so do not be carried away by multicolored alien teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. In some ways a very simple exhortation but also very deep and very profound and I think particularly when we understand it in its original context as we understand it as he is speaking to these Jewish believers and so I hope that all of what we've kind of seen through the book of Hebrews as he's interacting with very real people who are meeting very real struggles of faith as Jewish individuals who've come to faith in Jesus and the kinds of obstacles, the kinds of challenges, the kinds of uh, uh, pressing against their faith that they're facing, this is situated very much in that dynamic. And I think for us to understand it and apply it to ourselves, we have to first see it in that light. So I want to kind of camp on, on some foundational things today, and then we'll flesh it out a little bit more, Lord willing, the next time. When we look at the exhortation itself, the exhortation of verse 9, there are a few things that I wanted to point out just specifically about that. The first is the the writer's grammar. He expresses this in a way that perhaps your English version captures it, perhaps it doesn't. Reading from the New American Standard, it says, do not be carried away by multicolored or diverse and foreign teachings. But that, that exhortation, do not be carried away, is really stop being carried away. In other words, the writer understands he has the conviction we don't know how so I think he knows this community of believers well enough to know that at least some of them were being drawn in they were being enticed they were being influenced and drawn away by these things that he calls alien teachings. So, this isn't just kind of an abstract exhortation, hey, you know, think about this in the future, this could happen to you. He's calling them to actually address and shore up something that they're actually struggling with at that point in time. Stop being drawn away by multicolored, diverse, and foreign or alien teachings. And I think when we look at the clarification that he gives, then in verse, uh, verses 10 and 11, we see that these alien teachings—this really is the idea of that which is foreign—and <clears throat> that can mean all sorts of different things. But these are, and these are alien teachings, foreign teachings. But here's the interesting thing about that: is that when we look at the way he explains this, these alien teachings are teachings associated. With Judaism. The doctrines and the practices that had marked them in their pre Christ faith. This is not, you know, Greek Gnosticism or, you know, Platonism or, you know, Canaanite religion or whatever. This foreign teaching has to do with. The Judaism that is their heritage. And the last thing that I want to point out about that is that his contrast between grace and foods. And, and I, you really have to put on your thinking caps and, and, and try your best to to follow this today but the way in which he draws this contrast between grace and foods and the benefit that comes from them. Again, in a Jewish context, he's underscoring the key truth that how a Christian perceives and lives out his relationship with God is fundamental to his perseverance in the faith. Remember, the overall larger general idea of the epistle is the writer's burden and concern and instruction and exhortation to help his readers to persevere in their faith, to not be moved away, to not be scared away, to not be dissuaded in any way. He paints and and fleshes out this incredible portrait of Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel, in order to bolster them in their faith. That they would not let go, that they would not be distracted, that they would not be deviated in their thinking. And that idea is still very much present here. But as he talks about the benefit from foods versus grace, it has to do with how do you understand the nature and the living out of your relationship with God. And that that is critical to this issue of perseverance. Perseverance. How you think, how you understand is critical to persevering in the faith. So opening up this larger context a little bit, these foreign teachings or alien teachings then pertain specifically in context to this matter of one's relationship with God and what it really means to be faithful to him. That's what's at the heart of this thing when he warns them and he calls them back from a kind of embracing of alien teachings. How are they thinking about their relationship with God and what it means to be faithful to him? And we've said as we've gone through the epistle to the Hebrews that I think at least some of that uh, indirectly or directly challenged even the truth of Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah. Certainly, as it was a challenge from uh, Jews outside of the faith, there was this pushback, Jesus isn't the Messiah. We're waiting for God's Messiah. He's a false Messiah. He's an imposter. But more foundationally than that, it would seem that the main thrust of these teachings, these alien teachings, was to encourage the Hebrews to rethink Their faith, to rethink what really it was to be God's people. Their faith in Jesus, were they really still following after Yahweh at all? Had they departed from him? What did it mean to actually be faithful to God in the light of their own Jewish background and Jewish history? That's kind of where these things are pushing at them, these alien teachings. And from that vantage point, the reason I emphasize that is from that vantage point, it's easy to see why these readers were vulnerable to these teachings. As it were, these teachings were wind in the sails of the direction they were already sailing. If these teachings pertained to, again, the the life with God that they had known and the way that they had practiced and thought about and lived out their relationship with God, Before coming to know Jesus, then it's very easy to see why these strange teachings, so to speak, would be attractive, why they would be alluring, why they would even become uh, succumb to them in some sense. To the extent that these teachings as the writer and he doesn't tell us specifically what they are we have to read between the lines through the epistle and again what was happening at that point in the history and uh, and you know kind of put the pieces together in that way but I would say that to the extent that these teachings he's referring to reflected historical Judaism and its practices they really weren't at all strange or foreign to them Indeed, the familiarity of those practices and teachings is exactly what made them so effective. They've become strange. But in terms of their own heritage, their own tradition, their own understanding, they were not strange. But here's the second piece of that, and where the write, what the writer's getting at is that the truth is that the doctrines and the practices of Judaism as these Hebrew believers had practiced it and known it in their former lives before they came to know Jesus as the Messiah to the extent that those doctrines and practices those teachings actually conform to God's Torah, to his truth, to the covenant that Israel had with God to his scriptures, those Truths, those doctrines and practices actually testify of the Messiah. And that means then that faithfulness to Torah now entails faithfulness to Jesus. That's the dynamic in which these familiar teachings have become foreign. And so here's kind of to pull all of that part together. The answer to those who were calling for concessions, those who were pressing these Hebrews to make concessions to their Jewish heritage, to their Jewish background, even to the truths of the scriptures as they had understood them when they were practicing Jews those who are calling for these concessions to Judaism, the answer to those individuals is that the Messiah is always the same. Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same whether as promised in the past, in Israel's history, in Israel's scriptures. He's the same today as the one who is triumphant in the present. He is the one who is the same as he is fully revealed in the future. And so what had made these teachings become foreign or become alien is that they had failed to be viewed and understood in the light of the fulfillment that had come in Jesus himself. The answer to those who wanted them to make concessions, maybe not even completely walk away from their faith in Jesus, but just qualify that somehow, add to it, redefine it, reshape it. The answer was, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever So that's kind of the basic issue in uh, this exhortation, but the reason why I wanted to camp on it a little bit today is I think there are some things that need to be fleshed out, both in terms of the, the actual circumstance that the writer is addressing in time and space with these Hebrew believers and ultimately the larger significance of those issues. So the, the, the fundamental thing then that gets raised in this is what is faithfulness to God? The writer is, has been charging them with that obligation to remain true to the God of Israel known in Jesus the Messiah. Well, what does that look like? And he tells them again, stop being led astray by these things that, and he puts it in a Jewish context of the profitlessness of foods versus grace. Well, in the context of this epistle, the challenge to these Hebrews faithfulness was coming in a sense from the outside from their Jewish countrymen. But the same basic question, the question of what does faithfulness to God look like, that same question put maybe in this way, what defines God's people? How are God's people identified and what does it look like for them to be faithful to him? That was already beginning to become a point of conflict within the Christian community. In their case, I think that the, the Pressure was coming more from unbelieving Jews who were challenging these Jewish Christians. But within the church, very quickly, these same questions became front and center. Who are the people of God? What does it look like to be true to him? And certainly that became the case as more and more Gentiles were coming to faith. And so whether it pertained to their relationship with Judaism or, you know, what we do with the Gentiles, the most fundamental question that the early Christians were facing was the nature and the extent and the outcome of Jesus' work as the Messiah and what that meant for the people of Israel and for the wider world. That was the million-dollar question. And we look back 2,000 years ago and we think it was just kind of this seamless transition, but it was a very difficult, rocky time when everything was turned on its head and everything needed to be rethought. Just think of Paul in, a, in, in kind of a microcosmic way. Paul, the one steeped in the scriptures, Paul, the one who, who knew the Bible better than any of us. And everything had to be turned on its head. Not the Bible thrown in the trash, but the Bible, the truth of God, rethought in the light of Jesus, the Messiah. That was Paul's crisis. That was Paul's blindness and the scales falling from his eyes. Well, in terms of this issue of now we've got Gentiles coming to faith, how do we think about this? Even what does that mean for us as Jews? Now that we as Jews have said, yes, God has sent the Messiah to us. Well, Israel's scriptures had taught them to expect that at some point in time, God was going to send his Messiah and that Messiah would renew his covenant with the people. He would restore the house of Israel and he would return to them and he would again dwell with them. He would establish the kingdom first promised to Abraham promised to David, he would raise up David's fallen tabernacle, reestablish his house, his throne, and his kingdom. Yahweh would regather his people and he would renew them and restore them. But the scriptures also said that that restoration of Israel would be to the end that Israel would fulfill its own reason for existence, which is that it would be God's instrument of blessing to the whole world. So from the vantage point of these Jews who've come to faith, if Jesus is the Messiah, if they've come to believe that he's the Messiah of Israel, what does that mean? It means that this time of renewal and restoration has come. God has begun To restore his people Israel. He has returned to dwell with them. And what else does that mean? It means that now the time of the mission on behalf of the world must begin. And that's why you see Jesus even issuing his great commission. His great commission is nothing more than that. My disciples will now go out and fulfill. Israel's mission on behalf of the world, go and make disciples of all nations. And you see very quickly, you look at the beginning of Acts, Jesus says in, in response to this question about the kingdom, Luke says he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God and what it meant, what this restoration really is all about. And in answer to their question, he tells them that they're going to be clothed with, with power from on high, and that they are to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What does the meaning of the kingdom, what, what is the significance of the inauguration of this renewal of Israel and the Messiah? It means the ingathering of the nations. And that's what the book of Acts is showing us, the ingathering of the nations, the taking of the good news of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. But the first Christians were all Jews and Gentile proselytes to Judaism. And we don't tend to think that because we're so far removed that we don't tend to think in that way. But the point is is that early on, this Christian movement was seen as a movement within Judaism. It was seen as a Jewish movement. And even by themselves, certainly by those observing it, but even by the community of believers, they saw it as a Jewish thing. Now, they understood that this renewal of Israel in the Messiah meant now that the gospel will go out and Gentiles will be coming in. But it was a Jewish movement. And that meant that even as they began to now see Gentiles coming to faith, this question comes to the forefront. How do we understand these Gentiles in relation to this Renewal of Israel that is in the Messiah. See, we're so far removed. We think of predominantly a Gentile church, and these are like non-issues to us. These were huge issues. These were huge issues. How is this renewed Israel to be delineated in terms of Jew and Gentile? Even as Jews, how were they to think of themselves? What had changed? What was the same? But what would it mean for the Gentiles? Well, this quandary, this, this question that the church was struggling with, we often, at least in the scriptures, associate it with the Judaizing uh, you know, phenomenon, which technically the Judaizers weren't these Jewish you know, people who said keep the law. The Judaizers technically were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. The Judaizing was this process of getting Gentiles to, in a sense, become converts to Judaism. That's what the scripture is dealing with. Paul addresses this in his epistle, certainly very focusedly in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. But was also the primary motivation, the primary reason for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And fundamentally, this Judaizing pressure, I mean, you see it kind of in a sense captured at the beginning of Acts 15, those among the believing community, Jewish believers who are saying, yes, Gentiles can come in. Yes, Gentiles can be a part of God's renewed household in the Messiah, but they must be circumcised and they must bind themselves to the law of Moses. Now, for at least the last several hundred years, our tendency has been to say, okay, these, this, this Jewish conviction was the Judaizing conviction that was really a kind of legalism. That w- These Jews were legalists, that Judaism was a legalistic religion, and these Jewish Christians were legalists who were saying, you've got to earn your way into heaven effectively circumcision and Torah, you've got to do works in order to be saved. And that's become a very common way of thinking about this, but it causes us to really miss the point. And I am going somewhere with this. That view, that kind of simplistic thing, oh, this Judaizer thing is just a bunch of legalists, who are arguing for works righteousness rather than salvation by grace through faith, it it ignores the historical setting in the historical circumstance. It ignores the salvation historical context. And it really is grounded in a view of salvation that is skewed. That somehow what it comes down to is this standard that we are to comply with And that Jesus complied with. And you'll hear people say salvation is by works. It's just it's Jesus' works, not ours. Right? It is is salvation by works. But it's just that Jesus has done the works and not us. So the conclusion then comes very commonly that legalism is the heart of this Judaizing issue. But really, the and, and, and you know, there you see at the end of Galatians, Paul talks about those who don't want to be persecuted. You know, they, they want a glory in your flesh. And there was, a, there was a dimension of this in which there was a kind of uh, self-interest in this pushing Gentiles to be circumcised and to bind themselves to the law of Moses. And, and, and just in a sentence or two, the primary motivation is that the Roman Empire allowed latitude to the Jewish people. They didn't have to comply with all the other things that, you know, religious practices, sacrifices, oaths. They were allowed to kind of do their own thing because they were this weird, troublesome people that we don't want to deal with. And, and so you even see, you know, Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome at one point because they're just troublemakers. But Rome gave them a latitude. But now you have this Jewish movement that involves people who are not really taking the signs of Jesus. they're not circumcised, they're Gentiles, they're you know, and, and now it's stirring the pot. And there were people who said the easiest thing is for you guys just to be circumcised and to commit yourself to the Mosaic Covenant, and then Rome will leave us alone. We don't want to be persecuted. So, just go ahead and do that. But the fundamental issue behind this Judaizing pressure, here's my point it was the legitimate concern of what does it look like to be faithful to God and His covenant. These were not a bunch of legalists who were telling people to earn their way into heaven they were dealing with the very real question of how do we define God's people and faithfulness. And for 2,000 years, how had the covenant household of God been defined? Circumcision, Torah. And that was true whether you were Jewish or whether you were not Jewish. Beginning with Genesis 17, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And he said, those who are servants in your house, those who aren't even your descendants, they are to be circumcised in order to be a part of your house. And circumcision became the primary way in which you could identify the Abrahamic people who were the people to whom the covenant pertained. From the very beginning, who are God's covenant people? All those and only those who are members of Abraham's household. Covenantally, Gentiles could be a part of Abraham's house, but by circumcision and by binding themselves to God's Torah. Now, that became codified in the law of Moses, but it was it was the definition and the truth that God revealed. It was binding yourself to the God of Abraham and his disclosure, his instruction. And Gentiles were a part of of Israel from the very beginning, circumcision Torah. Circumcision, Torah. Now Jesus has come. Now you have a Jewish church in which all of these Jews are saying Jesus is the Messiah the scriptures have promised, but it's still about being members of Abraham's family. Who are the people of God? Abraham's family. Well, what does that look like? Circumcision and Torah. So when these Jewish believers were saying, we'll welcome Gentiles, but they have to be circumcised. They have to bind themselves to God's covenant. They were simply upholding what had been true from the very beginning. But what they were failing to understand is how those Abrahamic criteria had been transformed in Jesus it passes over our heads, but it was a scandalous thing for Paul to say he's not a Jew who's circumcised outwardly. That's precisely what made you a Jew. He's a Jew who's circumcised inwardly, with the circumcision not done by the hands of men, but done by the Spirit in Christ, right? That was scandalous. And for him to say, even in the, in the context of the Galatian epistle, circumcision means nothing. That was scandalous. In a predominantly Jewish church, the church was Jewish at that time, primarily. Now, you had more and more Gentiles coming in. But these things that seems, you know, we don't even notice them. They were hugely, radically scandalous. These Jewish Christians were simply saying, yes, Messiah, yes, Gentiles, but just as you always came into the house of Israel, the covenant family, by joining yourself to Israel as a proselyte to Judaism, circumcision Torah, that's still true. Jesus coming as the Messiah hasn't changed that. Jesus himself was circumcised. Read Luke 1 and 2. Luke makes much of the fact that Jesus was a bona fide Jew, circumcised on the eighth day. His mother offered the offering for his uncleanness according to the law, right? And he lived his whole life saying, I'm not disobedient to the law. Paul says he came into the world born of woman born under the law. The law meaning the, Israel's covenant. He was an Israelite, circumcised in the flesh. And these Jewish Christians are saying even Jesus the Messiah was a part of God's household in a sense in that way, circumcision and Torah. If the Messiah demonstrated his covenant sonship through circumcision and Torah, how could it be otherwise for his disciples, whether they're Jewish or Gentile? And the truth is, Jesus never denied those principles, Abrahamic identity, but he transformed them in himself. How have these teachings of Judaism become alien? Because they are not being recognized as having been transformed in the Messiah. That's the point. What was true? What was God given? Now, this was again at the heart of Jesus' contest with his own generation. They said, you're abrogating Moses and the prophets. How dare you say you can eat any food? God's Torah says, don't eat these foods. Who are you to come along and change these things? And he said, I'm not abrogating anything. I'm fulfilling all things. And that doesn't mean, yes, I'm only eating the foods that the law of Moses said could be eaten. He says the whole principle, the, the significance, the truth behind the dietary laws has become yes and amen in me. So what appears to be me changing things or abrogating things is me simply bringing them to their ultimate meaning and significance and thereby transforming them so that now dietary laws become alien. Do you see that point? Even as he talks about foods, and these Jews would have understood that. Jesus was born to fulfill all that God had disclosed, performed, and promised since the creation, and that included his covenant with Abraham and all that followed from it. If you look at Zacharias's benediction in Luke 1, he recognizes the birth of John as the forerunner, heralding now the time of the Messiah. And he says, this was in accordance with your faithfulness to Abraham and to David. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham and the ultimate referent of the covenant promises. That's why Paul can say when God made his covenant with Abraham and his seed, he didn't say seeds as many. He said one seed who's Christ. Well, what is he talking about? The covenant went from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to Jacob's 12 sons, then to the house of Israel. It was not with one. It was with the whole nation, Abraham and his seed. Well, how can Paul say it was really for one? Because ultimately, all of that was looking to the one seed in whom Israel would become Israel, in whom Abraham would become Abraham, in whom the covenant would be realized. He's the covenant of the nations. All of that converges in him. All of it is transformed in him. And and Paul can say, therefore, those who are really sons of Abraham... Those who are God's covenant people, those who are heirs, are those who belong to the Messiah. Those who are joined to him. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly. Circumcision is irrelevant. So even the Jews had to become Jews indeed through connection with the Messiah. There were two radical pieces to this transformation of the people of God. One, that the Gentiles did not have to become converts to Judaism. They didn't have to take to themselves Jewishness. And the reason they didn't have to is because Jews themselves had to become Jews indeed. Their circumcision, their Torah faithfulness now meant nothing. They had to be grafted into the Messiah in whom all of those things had become yes and amen. So Gentiles and Jews alike had a common destiny to be a part of the people of God. They had to become Messiah people. They had to be joined to Jesus. The covenant and its promise was to him. And so he didn't, you know, and again, they're wrestling with all of this. Sometimes we don't even wrestle with it, but in the early church, this was what they were wrestling with. What does this mean for the Israelite people? What does this, God said he was going to restore Israel in the Messiah. What does that look like? What does that mean? It should look like, okay, he he raises things up the way they were. No, he didn't do that. Jesus didn't disannul Israel. He didn't replace Israel, the covenant people, or its covenant Torah. He didn't. It seemed like it, but on the other side of that, neither did he recover Israel, the covenant people, and their covenant Torah. He didn't recover them according to their former existence. What the Jews were largely looking for is that when God does this work of renewal, we're going to go back to Israel the way it was before. It's going to look the way it did before. And they couldn't connect this person, Jesus, and his death and even his resurrection with that thing. Their expectation of what it would look like. And even many Christians today still are thinking in terms of Israel's restoration in terms of going back to the former order of things. A land, a city, a temple... It's just Jesus will be in there instead of, you know, some other high priest or, you know, David or whatever it happens to be. Jesus didn't disannul or replace, but he didn't either recover and reestablish Israel and its covenant relationship with God according according to the former order. That restoration was one of transformation. And so this thing that was called the ecclesia, the the community of God's people early on in the first several decades, that was primarily all Jewish, now Gentiles coming in, and they got to think about what does this look like, this new revived people of God in relation to the Messiah, what does that really look like? Well, it wasn't throwing Israel aside, throwing, you know, the covenant household, the Abrahamic people aside as they had existed. But it also wasn't resuscitating that which had gone into exile, that which had been put to death, that which God had abandoned. This new people were the people who were defined by their share in the resurrection of the Messiah. A new creation. It wasn't replacement. And you hear that often in our culture. Oh, you're just replacing Israel with the church. You're taking away Israel's promises. No, 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 no. This is not replacement, but it's not resuscitation either. It's resurrection. It's new creation. The new people of God are defined by their share in the resurrection of the Messiah. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ's new creation, there is no Jew or Gentile, male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. All of the former definitions have gone away, not by abrogation, by Christification. So here's my closing points, and these are the things I want you to think about Again, the writer is challenging his Jewish readers who've embraced Jesus with being enticed by and and being seduced by falling prey to alien teachings. Why are they alien? Because they were teachings associated with the period of preparation, Israel's period of preparation. And they were not taking into account the fulfillment of those truths in Jesus' person and work. They were alien. Because it's like continuing with dietary laws. What was binding on the nation of Israel, what partly demarcated them as the people of God, has now been transformed in the Messiah. And to hold on to the shadow is to now hold on to that which has become alien. Alien. It doesn't mean it wasn't true. It doesn't mean it didn't serve a purpose. But all of it has be- become yes and amen in the Messiah. So now those things have become alien. And how? what does this have to do with us? We're not Jews, you know, what does this have to do with us? Well, I would say that we fall prey to the same thing the the writer is warning his readers about whenever we hold to traditions or views or doctrines that fall short of the truth of the fulfillment that has come in Jesus. And I've seen it in messianic Christianity where essentially you have Christians who are practicing Jews, whether they're Gentiles or not, they're practicing the religion of Judaism with Jesus stuck onto it. You see it in certain confessional traditions that don't recognize the fulfillment of these things in the Messiah and how they've been transformed. You know, I've I've heard of people who've, Pastors who've spent two or three years dissecting in minutiae the Ten Commandments without ever really dealing with how those things have become yes and amen in the Messiah. Abrogated no, Christified yes. The view that's very common in our culture of this expectation of we can't wait till the temple's built. We can't wait until, you know, we're, we're back with the Jews ruling over the world from Jerusalem. Often the way this millennial kingdom idea is conceived is another example of being seduced by alien teachings, I think. There are myriad ways this can happen. Any time that our thinking is not bound over to the truth of what God has accomplished in the Messiah. And to put it most simply that truth in terms of the implications, the fact and the implications of Jesus' triumph over the old order, the putting to death of the former order of things and the inauguration of a new creation. How did Paul defend himself to the Corinthians? How did he defend his apostleship? How did he exhort them in terms of how they ought to think not just about him but about themselves, about their lives in Christ? new creation. Wasn't it? If any man is in Christ, new creation. You're not thinking about these things as you ought, he told them. You're not thinking about them as you ought. Paul would put it in terms of natural thinking, the ways of the old man, the ways that we naturally conceive, right? Put on the new self that has been created in God. Put on the new self. Paul was dealing with this whole Judaizing thing and the issue with circumcision and foods and and how do we understand the Gentiles and even, you know, levels of hierarchy or, you know, Jew, Gentile, all of this within the church, all of which though all of those errors were tied to this failure to understand new creation. And that's the way that he ends the epistle to the Galatians. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised that they may not be persecuted. I talked about that. But those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. Why? Because as Paul said earlier, you who want to keep the law, why don't you listen to it? The law prophesied of the Messiah. And there he's talking about the whole um, Pentateuch. He deals with Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and all this. And he says, listen to the law if you want to be subject to it. Those who are circumcised do not even adhere to the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. May it never be that I should boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through which the world, as we have known it, has been crucified to me. And I to the world for neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation those who will walk by that Torah that rule that canon peace and mercy be upon them even upon the Israel of God We think we're so far removed from this Jew Gentile question and all of the issues they were wrestling with in the early church, but we're not. We can still hold our faith in Jesus according to the old creation, according to religion, according to ways of thinking that are consistent with the preparatory time, new creation. Father, I I hope that these things will be things that we will think on. They don't provide the answer to every single little question that we may come up with about, uh, you know, how we make our decisions or whatever it might happen to be. But this is the sea that we have to swim in. The way that Paul dealt with these things was to say, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Once you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Be imitators of God as beloved children, raised up in Christ, seated in the heavenly realm in Him. Behold, the old things have passed away, new things have come. And we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our great pursuit, our great desire, our great effort is that we would, as Paul said, be fully conformed to our lord who is the truth of who we are that we would be fully christified if israel and its history and its torah and all of god's interactions throughout time reach their climax and we're transformed in him how much more is that the case with each one of us if we would be christians we must be christ followers And being Christ followers means bearing his fragrance, being conformed to him, growing up in him, studying him, learning him, striving in the spirit to be fully conformed to him. Father, I pray that we would not be those who are led astray by alien teachings, I pray that we would understand the significance of being established and strengthened by your grace in him as opposed to the things that we think, the things that we used to believe, the things that are commonly held, the natural ways of thinking and being and relating and understanding. Help us in these things. I pray that you would make these things clear in whatever way I have failed or fallen short or been confusing i pray that your spirit would attend and make these things clear and that they would be animating and that they would be energizing help us in all of this that we would be in truth who you created us to be that we individually and together would grow up in all things into christ who is the head it's in his name that we ask Amen.